for they shall inherit the earth. Now, if we're going to inherit the earth, let's, let's talk about world conquest for a second, just as we open up this morning. Let's think, think of some leaders, men who desired to conquer and rule. Maybe a name like Genghis Khan comes to mind. The man who is said to have left a mountain of skulls that remained for years in China. Or Alexander the Great. He, it's said that he wept after his last victory, realizing that there were no other worlds to conquer. Though he had not quite finished the job, but that's all right. Uh, Attila the Hun. Attila the Hun, a notorious name. He was known as the Scourge of God. A Caesar Augustus. His name, Augustus, means exalted. He seized power by executing thousands, and he was worshipped in Rome as a god. A Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon, who had a series of wars named after him. That's no small feat, the Napoleonic Wars. He even has a complex named after him, doesn't he? The Napoleon Complex. You ever ever heard of that before? Uh, That is what's called when a, a shorter person... Uh, usually a guy, right? A shorter guy acts out more aggressively, sometimes embellishes the truth in order to make up for his smaller stature. Okay, this complex is called this because evidently Napoleon was either shorter than average or some believe the British just liked to mock him as such. Uh, I'd take pictures with all of his troops who were all tall men, picked for their tallness, and it made him look short. So it's debated whether he was actually short or not. What's not debated is that he was a short-tempered, aggressive man. He is an aggressive little guy, all right? But all these men, as we look back in history, are known and regarded for their great, great meekness. Right? No. Wrong. Actually, one more example of great meekness in a conquering emperor, or the lack thereof, is found in, in our Bibles in the book of Daniel. I'm speaking of the great king Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 4, we read of a dream that the Lord gave to King Nebi about a a great tree that was chopped down, and he was the tree. And about a year after being warned of his coming downfall, Nebuchadnezzar looked around at his palace and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. And while those words were still in the king's mouth, it says, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling place shall be with the beast of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time, seven years shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men. And gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. And he was driven from among men. And ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven. This is when all the teenagers and youth group go, ooh, Till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers. And his nails were like bird's claws. All right. And then God graciously intervened in verse 34. At the end of the days, and this is now Nebuchadnezzar speaking. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. He didn't figure it out. He didn't have an aha moment on his own. His reason returned to him. By whom? By the grace of God. And it says, And I, Nebuchadnezzar, blessed the Most High. 
and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. This is Nebuchadnezzar speaking. That's some evidence of repentance, yes? All the inhabitants of the earth, and even me, Nebuchadnezzar says, are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? And at the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords, little L, sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. He says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And praise God for that truth, because we all naturally walk in pride. So much so that we begin to think that we are pretty good. We're pretty good at this whole humility and meekness thing. It's helpful to remember as we continue to walk through the Beatitudes, these blessedness is that the whole attitude of being great at being humble and being great at being godly, even earning the right to have the Messiah come and kick out and defeat the Romans, this thinking had become a part of some of the Jews' thinking when Jesus the Messiah did, in fact, come. And when he came, he was, he was supposed to thank the religious leaders for doing such a great job. He was supposed to tell everyone to get in line with their program. He was supposed to set them up after he got Rome out of the way and, and set up Israel as the world leader. Blessed are these awesome Pharisees. Blessed are the chief priests. Blessed are these people to have such great leaders. No. And so again, it would have come as a great surprise when what they heard... That on this particular day, along this hillside north of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus said these things instead. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who understand they bring nothing to the table spiritually. Who come to realize by the grace of God that they are dead in their trespasses and sins. Hopeless, helpless on their own. And blessed are those who mourn. Mourn. Those who come to the awareness of their sin condition, they come to the awareness of the gravity of their sin that they've committed, and they grieve spiritually. For they and they alone will be comforted, and they and they alone have the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those Jewish leaders, though, they, in their mind, they weren't poor. No, they were rich. They had no reason to mourn. Uh, They prayed to be heard and were informing God as to how much better they were than those other people. And they knew the Messiah is going to come. He's going to defeat all his enemies, our enemies. He's going to rule as king of kings. Who does this Jesus guy think he is? What is this kind of program? What is this kind of idea? He's no world leader. He's no Caesar Augustus. And it's a good thing he wasn't. And isn't. Because Caesar Augustus was no God. Just a man who needed to realize that he was poor. That he needed a savior. And we didn't and we still don't need man's interpretation of a world leader. We needed and we need God's man. We needed to be redeemed. Atoned for. Saved. 
We needed a king who was also meek and lowly, a suffering servant. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So today as we look at this verse, I'm going to seek to answer four questions. Number one, what is meekness? What isn't it? And then what is it? It can be the tough word to define sometimes, and we're going to say a few different things and kind of circle around, and I hope by the end of this, we're going to have a pretty good idea of what meekness is. Number two, how do we become meek? How do we become meek? If Jesus says that being meek is good, then certainly we want to be meek. But how does that happen? And question number three, how do the meek think and act? What does meekness look like? Another way we could ask this is, what is the fruit of meekness? And then number four, of course, what will God give to the meek? And just to be clear and get this right from the start, this question is not, what will the meek earn? What will the meek earn? The meek earn nothing, but instead, what will the meek be freely given by God's grace? Okay, so question number one, what is meekness? How could we, how should we define meekness? And this word is used in the Greek, the way it's used, it can be translated as gentle, mild, Humble. And the word was often used in the context of training animals, like horses, uh, mules. The idea, idea being when a, when a horse is wild, when it's yet untrained, if you're going to get that horse to be useful, what do you have to do? You have to break it. You have to train it uh, to get it to do what you want it to do, to get it under your control. It doesn't mean the horse is uh, lazy or that the horse loses its strength. It just means that its strength is harnessed to be used uh, for productive, focused, intentional reasons and at the command of its owner, of its rider. Uh, So meekness isn't weakness. It can be strength under control. Uh, And specifically in this context, the strength God gives us, our confidence being rooted in Christ under the control of God under the submission of God. Meekness and humility doesn't take away our confidence or our energy or our ability or strength. Instead, what meekness does is put all those things under the lordship of Christ because we realize that all those things, our strength, abilities, confidence, energy, everything else, were given to us by him to be stewards They were given to us to be stewards and given to us by Christ. So they're given to us by him and they are ultimately for him. I already mentioned the idea of meekness not being weakness. Uh, There are some other false ideas or definitions of meekness that the world might like to throw at it that sometimes we might even throw at when the word meekness. Ideas like timidity. Timidity. Uh, Being spineless, maybe. Unassertive. A person who's easily dominated or intimidated. Passive. Sometimes even being lazy can be confused as meekness. Kind of in a similar way that the Proverbs say that a silent person, the person who never opens their mouth, could be considered wise. But why this confusion? These things aren't meekness. Why this confusion? Why why would we get the idea that meek people are timid? Or spineless? Or passive? Or intimidated? Maybe even regarded as having a low self-esteem? 
And the answer to that question, I think, is motive. Motive. What drives us to do what we do? What desires or fears cause us to act or react or even recoil the ways that we do? Now think about this. Later in Matthew 5, we're going to see Jesus telling us to turn the other cheek, right? Uh, To give people our cloaks even after they've already taken our tunic. Uh, To go the extra mile when we've only been forced to go one. And there are different motives that could go into those decisions, those actions. If someone does me wrong and and the outward response I need to give is, is not to defend myself, but to proactively show kindness in the midst of that wrongdoing, I could do that just because I'm terrified of that person, of the consequence of not doing what they're saying, uh, because I think it'll go better for me, you see. Sometimes we're even crazy enough to think that it'll earn us respect, like they'll like me more if I do this thing. Now, I could go the extra mile simply because I fear man more than I fear God. And that fear could show up uh, in the form of actual trepidation for what they might do. Or that fear could show up in a strong, uh, seemingly unbearable urge to get that person to regard me, to like me. And if those are the reasons that I went the extra mile, if those are the reasons I turned the other cheek, that's not meekness. That wouldn't be meekness. But if I know that my Lord has called me to love my neighbor, even to love my enemies, to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good, and have trust that he is my defender, and I choose to obey my Lord in the midst of a difficult situation, some might call that brave. Some might call that being cool under pressure. Others might call it idiotic. The Lord would call it Meekness. Meekness. So meekness is a gentleness, a humility, and it's a submission. A submission to what God has called us to do. And we can apply this submission to what we uh, might endure, go through, suffer through, and we can also apply it to what we ought to do. Not just what we endure, but what we do. What I mean is this. Uh, Think about this. If I know I need to say something, if I know I need to share the gospel, uh, I know I need to speak the truth to my brother or sister in Christ for their good in love, if I need to help someone out in a way I'm worried they won't necessarily appreciate, and I don't do it, I refrain. Is that because I was being meek? Or did I not do it because I wasn't being meek? meek. Does that make sense? That second one's the right answer, by the way. You see, sometimes when the world thinks you should fight for your own honor, fight for your own reputation, meekness means in that situation you remain silent, as Christ did before his accusers. And other times when other people's well-being is on the line, when they need someone to stick up for them, when they are in danger, perhaps they just need to hear the gospel. Meekness means you speak up, as Christ did in the temple when the religious leaders were taking advantage of the people. Remember, Christ was perfectly meek, and he both was silent before his accusers, and he rebuked and kicked all of the wrong, sinful activities out of the temple. Same Jesus, 
same perfect righteousness, same meekness, but we might look at those and go, whoa, those are two different responses, generated by the same right motives. Meekness is not a lack of strength. It is great strength used in self-control and under the lordship of Christ to persevere in the midst of suffering. That takes strength, doesn't it? Uh, Willing to allow the Lord to be your fortress or to be used by the Lord to love others. It takes strength and humility to turn the other cheek for the right reason. It takes strength and humility to share the gospel with a person when you don't know how they'll respond. It takes strength and humility to help a person who has no interest in helping you. Kind of like how Jesus died on the cross while we were yet sinners. Even asking forgiveness of the men who beat him and hung him on the cross. Meekness. And with that, it's time to ask our second question. How do we become meek? How do we get there? How do we become like this? How do we become, become the kind of people who would help those who have no interest in helping us? To return good for evil. To not care if our name is drugged through the mud. And yet willing to protect others who can't protect themselves. And with the humility aspect here, uh, it doesn't sound right to say, uh, well, I can grow in meekness. I know I can. Uh, maybe if I do this, or if I try harder at that, or whatever, if I do this and this and this, I can find it in myself. I can do this. I have the strength to become more meek. That's not how that works, is it? Remember, we don't get good at being poor in spirit. That's kind of like the opposite, right? I'm so great at being poor. Uh, no, <laughs> right? Uh, this is something that we already are. We are already poor in spirit. God graciously opens our eyes to the truth. We don't get good at mourning. If we got good at mourning, we might be excited about mourning and then we wouldn't be mourning anymore because we'd be so excited. We can't say, wow, I'm getting really good at this. No, we simply grieve. We grieve spiritually when we realize the reality of things, our natural condition, when we sin against the Lord. It happens. And in the same way, we don't muster up our meekness. Uh, Meekness is a fruit, a result of something that God is doing in us, a result of what God has revealed. And so meekness comes when we know and understand the truth. Meekness comes when we know and understand the truth. Christ said in John 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So then what is the truth we need to know? Two things, two major things, the truth about ourselves and the truth about God. The truth about ourselves that we've already looked at the last two weeks, we are poor in spirit. We're totally depraved. We are born in sin and we are sinners by choice and deed. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, helpless on our own. We are deserving of eternal justice in hell. And we are no better, we are no better than any other sinner who might do us wrong. Remember, slaves to sin. What do sinners do? They sin. When we remember who we are, it helps us to know who they are helps us to think rightly about their actions. 
Number two, the truth about who God is. So that's who we are. Who's God? Well, he's holy. Holy. It's hard to grasp all that that word means. Uh, and, And a lot of its meaning is being set apart. And God is certainly set apart from all of creation because he is its creator. He created all things by his might, uh, by his word. And he is therefore our rightful Lord and master. Not just of the people who want, but of all his creation. He is perfectly righteous. He is good in everything he is, and therefore he is good in everything he does. He is just. Every single sin must and will be paid for. Everyone. And at this point, without going any further, we, we have a massive problem, correct? If that's where this all stops, we are sinners. He is just. This is a problem. Until we learn that God is also gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. He's merciful. He doesn't give us what we do deserve. He's loving, sacrificing himself for our benefit. He sent in his love, sent Christ to redeem us through his death, his suffering at the cross. Uh, Exodus 34 is a great passage for this. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord is revealing who he is to Moses. And he says, The Lord, the Lord, says his name twice, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Not occasional feeling it love, steadfast love. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is all Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And then it finishes with this. But who will by no means clear the guilty? Well, that's a problem. Because that's us. How can God by no means clear the guilty and forgive iniquity and transgression and sin? And the answer is in Romans 3. Starting in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we are. And are justified, declared not guilty, given the righteousness of Christ by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. The wrath of God completely satisfied in the death of Christ. To be received by faith, not by works, by faith. Uh, This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier. Every sin justly punished. And because Jesus was punished on our behalf, He is our justifier, declaring us innocent. And only those who have faith in Jesus. So this is what happens. 
<laughs> when we look into the perfect mirror of God's word, and not just to read it, not just to check it off our list, so maybe like the goodness will rub off on us and we'll have a better day that day and less bad stuff will happen. Sometimes we can think like that, right? But actually reading God's word to hear from our Lord and Savior. And we see the truth of who we are. We realize, I am poor in spirit. And, and we mourn our condition before a holy, just God who deserves our complete obedience, our complete righteousness. And then we realize what he's done for us because we failed. We realize what he's done for us, that he loved us first, proactively, that he chose us, that we were elect before the foundation of the world, that he has promised to change us to perfection, that we will live eternally, that we will rule and reign with Christ. And what is the fruit of all that knowledge? Of believing that? Of understanding it? Apprehending it? I say, God, you have been so abundantly kind to me. You have been so gracious, so merciful, so loving. And I'm no better than any of these other people. And I wouldn't be any different if you hadn't graciously worked in me and were broken, rightly surrendered, and now ready for service to our King. And we need to go through that a lot, don't we? We forget often. We need to be reminded often. And as we are reminded of the truth, our amazement and our preoccupation with ourselves rightly decreases. And our amazement and our preoccupation with Jesus rightly increases and we grow in meekness. You see? Right worship. Right worship rooted, grounded in the truth of God's word creates, produces meekness in us. And then number three. What is the fruit of meekness? What does it look like? Uh, how do the meek think? How do they act? If meekness is itself the fruit of a right knowledge and thinking and worship about uh, who we are and who God is and, and what he's done, what he's doing, what he's going to do, then what is the fruit of that meekness? In order to answer that, let's look at some examples in Scripture. Let's think about Moses. Numbers 12.3 tells us that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Now, don't get proud about that, Moses. He was the meekest man on the face of the earth, but he wasn't always that way, was he? Not all of his life, and not even after some of his meekest moments, he wasn't always that meek. Now, when God first appeared to Moses in the burning bush, Moses, he wasn't so sure he could or should lead, or even speak the words that God would have him to say. And God said to him, who gave you your mouth? As God revealed himself to Moses, as we already saw from Exodus earlier, Moses submitted and followed the Lord. He served the nation of Israel in leadership. And also, there's some good and bad, right? And when Moses got fed up with the people and didn't want to deal with their complaining, why do I have to do this? Perhaps he got a little preoccupied with himself and all the mess he had to deal with. And remember, he struck that rock twice, didn't he? Just speak to it, God said. And he got angry. He disobeyed God. 
a human being just like us, times of meekness, times of pride. How about Gideon? Gideon. Remember, Gideon wasn't so sure he was the guy for God's plan either. God was going to use Gideon to defeat the Midianites. Gideon helped God out by showing just how unqualified and underprepared he was. But God this, and but God that, and, and we're such a small people, and who am I? Little old me. How little he would have been to contribute to this fight. And so God showed Gideon just how little he would need to contribute, didn't he? He kept reducing the troops, reducing the troops so low, so few, that there would have been no way, humanly speaking, that Israel could have defeated the Midianites. But God had never intended for Gideon to win that battle. God was going to give him the victory. Well, that sounds like something we need to hear. And after the battle was won, the people wanted to make Gideon king. And in a moment of awareness of the truth, Gideon rightly reminded them in meekness that he was no king and that God was the one who had given them the victory. God was the one who was king in Israel. And then, a little bit later, when the heat of the moment cooled down and Gideon perhaps started remembering how awesome he'd been and how lucky Israel was to have him as their leader, he named his son, My Father is King, Abimelech. Whoops. After David had been anointed the next king of Israel, he was willing to dodge the spears of King Saul, and he was unwilling to kill Saul himself, the Lord's anointed, because he knew that God had made a promise and would grant its fulfillment when the time was right, when it was God's sovereign will. And so he respected the unrespectable King Saul in meekness. And times later, during his own reign, David got a little preoccupied with himself at time, didn't he? And one time he took another man's wife. And to hide that sin, he took that man's life. Try to cover up his own sin. A Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul, uh, was full of self-importance and significance. He was a rising star among the Pharisees. He would later, though, call all of those accolades, all of those achievements, a pile of rubbish, dung, Because one day, on the road to Damascus to go persecute the Christians there, Paul saw Jesus for who he really is. God graciously gave him that awareness, didn't he? He saw the truth about who Jesus is and the truth about who he, Paul, was. And by God's grace, he rightly responded, Lord, what will you have me to do? Surrender. Meekness. And then the man who later called himself the chief of all sinners, he went and he did it, didn't he? And, and he struggled. He wasn't perfect. He openly shared his struggles in Romans 7, saying, Oh, wretched man that I am. But by God's grace, like we as well, we'll be growing, progressively sanctified, growing in meekness, growing in Christ-likeness. And in that growth served the Lord. So we are going to have times of meekness and we're going to have times where we struggle with that, aren't we? We need to preach, our, preach the gospel to ourselves often. But we see in these examples, too, uh, two changes in times of meekness and times of pride. A change in the vertical relationship with ourselves and God, how we relate to him, and in our horizontal relationships, the way we view and treat other people. So the vertical, in our, in our meekness, in times of meekness, as we grow in meekness, we will want to hear from and truly listen and be responsive to the word of God. 
That'll be an evidence of it, the fruit of it. We will want to hear from him, want to see his word and hear his word and read his word. Uh, James 1 says it this way, verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce righteousness, the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And this is the fruit of that. But be doers of the word. Remember, meekness is also surrender. We receive with meekness the implanted word and then we become doers of the word. And not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That hits me hard. It's my job. I get the wonderful privilege of studying the Bible all the time. It's super easy to do that, isn't it? To be a hearer and not a doer. But when we rightly view God and rightly view ourselves, there will be a desire to hear, to read God's word, and there will be a desire to do God's word. A pride results in in being quick to speak, quick to defend, quick to anger, reaction, 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 reaction. Lacking in self-control. Meekness, though. Meekness results in a readiness to hear God's word and a desire to submit to his revealed will. A second, how about our horizontal relationships, relationships with other people, one another. First Peter 2, verse 18, Christ becomes our example. And, and Peter, specifically speaking here to servants working under a master, we can certainly apply this to ourselves. It says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Respecting people who rule over us even when they're unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? He's saying, if you're actually doing wrong, uh, don't feel like you're the poor suffering person. Because you actually did wrong. So there's consequences for that, right? So what, what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it, you endure? But... If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He, he committed no sin. We have. <laughs> he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, Peter, amazingly, right? Peter calls our attention back to our need for salvation and Christ's sacrifice for it to encourage our meekness toward one another. So just like we said earlier, how do I become more meek? Go back to the gospel. Go back to the gospel. 
In the same way, Matthew 18, uh, Ephesians 4.32, Colossians 3.13. And all of those passages were told to forgive one another as Christ forgave us. Again, what fuels that? The gospel. As Christ forgave us. Matthew 18 especially reminds us that we would never be in a position. We will never be in a position, ever, to need to forgive someone, another person, more than God has already forgiven us. And it's not because somebody doesn't sin against us grievously. But who are we? And who is God? And we've sinned against him. And he's forgiven us. We can forgive. In Romans 12, 14 through 21, we're given this instruction. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Don't look around for the crowd to find who all the shiniest people are and make sure that you're with them. Associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, God says this. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals in his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Remember that burning coal that touched Isaiah in Isaiah 6? It purified him. These are not burning coals so that we can say, Yes, he's burning. These are burning coals that work by God's grace to purify a sinner like we need to be purified as sinners. In meekness, we are able to endure suffering, to be ready to forgive, to return good for evil. And this meekness comes to us through a right understanding of who God is. In Romans 12, that right understanding includes knowing that God is just, that he will take final vengeance, that whatever they would need to suffer... Uh, for what their sin against God is far more than whatever they would need to suffer for their sin against us. God is going to make sure all sin is paid for. We don't have to ensure that. We don't have to be that judge. And he may choose to let that person's sin be paid for the same way your sin was paid for, through Christ. So return good for evil. Let's be praying that those burning coals produce that confession, repentance, so that others may know the forgiveness that we have through Christ and that our former enemies would become our brothers and sisters in Christ. And more than just vengeance, we also know that God has promised us even more. Remember, he has promised to us blessedness, happiness, eternal happiness in him. And to the meek, in this verse, he has promised to us that we will inherit the earth. Number four, what does God give to the meek? The earth. The earth. Gideon didn't defeat the Midianites. God gave Gideon the victory. David didn't take the crown. God gave David the throne. And God gave David a descendant who would sit on that throne forever. And God has given us, given to us, the privilege of ruling and reigning with that very king, King Jesus. In Romans 8, God's word tells us the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs. 
an inheritance. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And that doesn't mean if you suffer enough, you'll get it. It means you're in Christ. And in this world, there will be tribulation, right? In Revelation 5, this is said of the Lamb. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they, and that's us, they shall reign on the earth. So Christian, you don't need to be the conqueror. There's no Napoleon complex necessary here. Because Christ has already conquered everything for you. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, Christ said, for I have overcome the world. All that God has promised to us through Christ is an inheritance. It is a precious possession that is being given to us, not earned. Which is good news. Because we could never earn it. And so we know. We know we are poor in spirit. And knowing the goodness of God, we mourn. And then, seeing who God is. Experiencing his kindness and loving grace toward us. It humbles us. We grow in meekness. We desire to know his will through his word. And being broken, being surrendered to his will, we submit and joyfully serve our Lord and Savior. Whether that means we must quietly endure suffering in the name of Christ, whether that means we must raise our voice to point people to Christ, regardless of what that might do to our worldly reputation, or to help those who cannot help themselves, whether it's God's command, whatever it is that God commands us to do in Scripture, in meekness, we will want to do it. And we might even say, Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will. Your will be done. And in our meekness, we will no longer be enslaved in our felt need for self-preservation. Instead, we will be freed. Realize self-preservation is bondage. Instead, we'll be freed to love God, to love people, entrusting our care and our eternity to the one who loved us first. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these wonderful promises. Promises. And God, as we, as we continue to study through these truths, these beatitudes, God, help us to understand more and more as we go along through this that these things are not true of us because we ever had it in ourselves. That they are markers, that they are fruits, evidences that you are working that you are doing, that you are being gracious. So that as we would even sit through a message like this or the ones in previous weeks and we would know that these things have been true in our heart, 
even though we, in truth, see them fluctuating in our lives, sometimes seeing things rightly and sometimes not. Lord, that we would know that in those times when we we understand these things to be true, that it's because you love us, because you are working in us. And Lord, also rejoice in the truth that you're going to finish the work that you've started until it's perfect. God, thank you for what you are doing. And I pray, Lord, that in this understanding and this knowledge, we would be driven to your word. We would be driven to hear from you. We would be driven to desire to submit to you and your lordship because we're driven to worship because of how wonderful and great you are. God, thank you for your great, great love for us. Use us for your glory. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.